Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hi, Augie. Hi, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We have a guest with us today. Yay, special guest. Um, we have Dr. Judy Twig, who is in the poli-sci department at Virginia Commonwealth University. And she has a couple of specialties, which are touching on things we want to talk about right now. Um, global health, and uh, specifically Russia, and all things Russia, and all things global health, which I think is a lovely or not lovely combination, depending on how one thinks about these sorts of things. Um, and I, she doesn't know... Uh, that my tendency is to world domination. Um, But I think we should introduce her to this concept, don't you? (laughs) So uh, as some of our listeners are well aware, Nia at various uh, points uh, in our podcast episodes um, has wanted to become president um, uh, of either the United States or pretty much of the world. Space Force, etc. Um, and one of the things that we uh, were thinking is, uh, is there a model of behavior for NIA uh, out there uh, amongst the international community? And one of our thoughts was, well, sure, Vladimir Putin in Russia. Uh, and uh, as my colleague uh, Judy Twig is uh, is is uh, is well aware. Um, I like to punctuate many of my jokes um, with what's going on in the United States. With how does this compare to Russia and Vladimir Putin? Thus, the reason why we extended an invitation to Judy, um, so she can go ahead and clarify all the ways that either Nia can uh, aspire to be like Vladimir Putin or not depending on the situation. Is it too late for me to rethink my accepting the invitation to appear on this podcast? <laughs> well, so hello, hello, Judy. Thank you so much for coming. Um, the, the Augie's role has generally been to advise me against things. So feel free to advise me against behaviors that you think might have me ending up oh, I don't know, invading Ukraine or doing something else that might be deemed not so good by the rest of the world. Um, so, yeah, you're not here necessarily to tell me how to do it uh, so that I can be dictator of the world, but maybe warn me off if there are downsides to this dictator thing. Um, and, uh, and all silliness aside, so I don't know much about Russia um, <clears throat> except that I called uh, Putin as the winner of his first election when my roommates were all taking bets back then because he was the one they hadn't heard of and I'm like yeah it's always the dangerous one like the quiet one who comes out of the ex-KGB right he was in Germany and I think stationed in Germany like so he was like mm-hmm. this quiet dude off to the side and I'm like oh that's the guy he's gonna win and um, and he did and he's been president since which is what going on about 400 years now mm-hmm. yep so, wow, we're, I mean, you're digging way far back into, uh, into post-Soviet uh, Russian political history. 
Um, but yeah, what happened was that at the end of the 1990s, when Boris Yeltsin, remember him? Ah, yes. When he was the first really and truly democratically elected president of the Russian Federation. Um, and toward the end of you know, what, what would have been Yeltsin's second term as president, which was at the turn of, of the millennium, um, it was pretty clear that he was sick and to be quite straightforward, drunk most of the time. Um, a couple of pretty embarrassing incidents where clearly he wasn't in command of his faculties in, in public appearances. Um, and so Russia went through a series of people in the prime minister position that was clearly intended to be something of a testing ground for someone who would be um, sober and stable and in command as a logical, probable successor to Yeltsin. And a pretty good handful of those people failed for various reasons as we went, you know, I mean, this was for years in the, in the late 1990s. And so Yeltsin pulls out of relative obscurity. I mean, Putin wasn't completely obscure. He was head of the state security services, the infamous KGB, um, at the time that he was appointed as prime minister, which was clearly you know, making him the, uh, the obvious favored, you know, sort of poster child of good governance. But, you know, he, he was the anointed candidate um, to, to succeed uh, to succeed Yeltsin, um, but he had vaulted up the ranks very quickly in order to become head of the KGB. He was, as you say, a relatively um, you know, sort of normal functionary of the KGB at a pretty miserable um, outpost in Dresden, Germany, as the Cold War ended. Um, he came back into a city government position in St. Petersburg as the Soviet Union collapsed and all of those, or at least all that we knew of, um, KGB agents got pulled back in from, uh, from their positions. Um, and he rose fairly quickly uh, up the ranks and, and, and through the security services just in like 98, 99. Um, but at the time that he was, stood for election as president of Russia in the year 2000, um, he was already Yeltsin's chosen successor and was serving as prime minister. So. Was he just uber charismatic? Is that how he vaulted no, those ranks? No, or was he, or did he have dirt on people? Or um, Probably had dirt on people um, because he was head of the KGB, even for just a little while. Um, he was young, um, sober. I keep coming back to that word, sober. <laughs> and, um, and was to perceive to be a lot of the things that at that point Yeltsin was not, and ah. Yeltsin was lacking. One other really key thing that Putin brought was clearly a, a behind-the-scenes agreement that as president, he would not reach back and prosecute Yeltsin or any members of Yeltsin's family. Oh. Crimes that Yeltsin may have committed. Okay. Um, so that, that was important. Um, so fast forward then, Yeltsin serves, a, or excuse me, Putin serves a first four-year term from 2000 to 2004. He's reelected to a second four-year term from 2004 to 2008. And he's the only game in town at that point, right? He's gone pretty far toward establishing a political system that's become known as the power vertical, right? Where he and back then a bunch of rich private sector oligarchs kind of control the system from the top down. And 
the system is so heavily oriented around this one guy at that point and this one guy's co-opting of the private sector oligarch community that there's no clear alternative that would offer the country continued stability, really no obvious alternative that's going to get um, votes in an election. So what do they do? Um, they do what's become known as the castling maneuver. Um, oh, is that Medvedev? Where they take the prime minister Medvedev, move him into the presidency in, you know, what's clearly a rigged election, um, <laughs> and, and, Yeltsin, and Putin assumes the prime minister position in 2008. Everybody assumes that they'll go forward with that, adhering to the constitutional provision that you can't be president for more than two consecutive terms. Right. But if you take a four-year term off, then you can come back. And so what happened in 2012 was what everybody knew was going to happen, which is that Putin then stands for election for another term in, in 2012. Now, an interesting thing here is that Medvedev walked kind of a tightrope during his presidency from, from 2008 through 2012, where he actually you know, struck out a little bit on his own in a number of different areas, but managed also not to do so many things that he would look threatening enough to Putin that Putin would feel inspired to boot him out, right? Okay. Uh, so, and, and, and Medvedev has ruined his own political career in a handful of other ways in the last couple of years since then, um, but- uh, But he's still alive. But he, he's still so, alive. So he wins in, at some level which is not something you can say about people who have pissed Putin off in right. major ways over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, so Putin comes back into, I'm trying to go through a lot of, uh, a lot of ground uh, relatively quickly here. So the 25 words or less version is that um, Putin gets reelected to the presidency in 2012 and they change the constitution so that terms of the presidency are for six years at that point but there's still a two consecutive terms provision. So that, so now you've got Putin in office from 2012 through 2018. He stands re-election in and 2018. Shockingly, and he wins. Shockingly, he wins, although I, shockingly, he wins. And there is plenty of, you know, video footage of ballot boxes being stuffed. You know, there, there's clearly messing around going on, but to, to be fair to Putin, in, in defense of Putin's skill as a manipulator of public opinion and that political system, I don't think he needed to do that. I think he would have won fairly solidly without any kind of manipulation. The numbers wouldn't have been as skewed in his favor as they were, but he still, you know, through 2018 into 2019, could could have won a free and fair election. Is he beloved at is he just that beloved that people in Russia are like or is it more like better the devil you know than the devil you don't or so I don't like him but he's stable. Yeah. I mean beloved's a weird word in the Russian context, right? Um so I, I until the until recently um Beloved by many, respected, um, feared. Feared, yeah. So I was about to go to feared. Um, maybe not. Um, but 
back to that point about the power vertical that I made earlier. He has made himself, he's constructed a political system in which he is so indispensable. He is the only game in town. And he has successfully maintained that situation such that outside of you know, a, a relatively small but vocal political opposition community in Moscow, St. Petersburg, um, he, he's all that's there. Now, he has complete control of state-run media. And state-run media is just about all the media that there is, right? So he's managed to manipulate the perception of himself such that he is um, competent, masculine, um, successful. You know, think about all of the, you know, calendar-esque photos you've seen of yes. him back on the horse, wrestling the tiger, <laughs> um, doing the underseas archaeological dive, right? Karate, um, he did something with judo or something. He's actually he... a world-ranked judo expert, right? He, 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 was, he was a little wiry bullied kid as a child and, and, and did not come from a privileged background, um, grew up on kind of the mean streets of what was then Leningrad. Um, and clearly got into a lot of fights as a kid. And I think that's where the judo thing came from, right? You know, it's the martial arts as a means to kind of uh, strengthen his own capacity for self-defense and, and exist in that environment. Um, and it's where the desire, I think, to be, um, to have a career as a thug comes from, right? You know, there, there are, stories that are pretty widely accepted to be true that as a teenager he just walked into the local KGB office and said hi I want to work for you guys when I grow up and they um, apparently sort of patted him on the head and said that's nice son um, you know go off to college and get your degree and you know do these other handful of things that would qualify you and then come back and you know we'll, we'll talk then um, so anyway sure. Yeah, he's, he, has a, he has a long and interesting personal background, but he's been self-grooming for exactly this kind of situation for, for forever, right? For so, so in 2024, when the next election rolls around, will there be a castling? Or at that point, will the Constitution be changed? Okay, wait, no. So you've led us up to, I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? So, oh, you just suck as a dictator, Nia, right? They're already <laughs> way out ahead of you on this. You're, you're, you're not nearly as um, manipulative and malicious as the people at the top of Russia's political system are. <laughs> so well, I, yay. Yay for me, <laughs> I think. But, um, okay, so, but so, so I think I'm getting ahead of myself, though, because earlier this year, mm -hmm. didn't he do something like everybody goes away now and it's just me? Yes. Or something like yes. that? So he didn't come out front and do it himself. Um, people in the parliament, the state Duma, um, back in January, started to make proposals that we need to, in the interest of national stability, blah, blah, blah we need to amend the constitution again. And the constitution has to be amended such that basically the current occupant, or actually it's not just the current occupant, it's anyone who has ever held the presidency. So it technically includes Medvedev as well, although that's totally like an accidental side 
consequence of all this, right? This is all aimed at Putin. Um, anyone who is currently in the job or has held the job um, is not term limited anymore. But only those people. Right. So if so, they lost an election. So it out the possibility for Putin to run for two more six-year terms after the expiration of his current term in 2024. So basically, it's setting himself up for the possibility of re-election that would keep him in office until the year 2036. Or until he dies, whichever, right? Because in 2036, there's no reason he can't get uh, well, so, No, technically, that would be the end of his eligibility yes. by, according to the terms of the Constitution. He gets oh. more terms after, after the current term. At that point, I can't remember the math. I can't remember how old he'll be at that point. Um, he's 67 right now. He's 67 right now. So we're taking him well past male Russian life expectancy well past male Russian life expectancy by, by the time we get to that point. So, so this, all of this, all of these constitutional changes with the change in his eligibility for term in office, and, and this doesn't keep him in automatically, it just lets him run for re-election two more times. But if he owns the media. If, so let's come back to that because okay. he owns all the state-run media, but he doesn't own the internet, at least not yet. So let's ah. talk about where young people are getting their news in Russia and the extent to which people are starting to search for alternatives beyond state-run media, because that's a really interesting and important question. Um, and let's talk about what's happened to his popularity um, since really the summer of 2018 when he changed pensions. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, um, it always comes down to money, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that had been a political third rail for forever. And he touched it um, oh. and, and, and took ownership of it. I mean, to, to his credit, <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he yeah, did. I saw air quotes from both of you. What was happening to, uh, to somebody else, but, uh, but his popularity has taken a hit since the summer of 2018. And, um, and then, you know, there's a pandemic now, and we'll definitely want to come back to the way he has been weirdly passive in his ownership of the government response to the, the coronavirus. Um, okay. And, um, but before we do that, let, let's talk about a couple of other things that happened back in January with all this talk about the constitutional changes. Okay, wait, I have a, wait, I have a sure. question. So there are two houses of Duma, right? Like, like yeah. regular yeah. parliaments, there's a what is it like a House of Lords and a House of Commons or? Yeah, kind of like the House and Senate. Where sort of. There's, there's one, you know, sort of House type, you know, representational by geography system. And then there's an upper chamber that's basically representation among the, the country's regions by the regional. Uh, okay. Okay. And those are, those are elect elected positions, right? Um, the House equivalent is elected. The Senate equivalent used to be elected, but they changed it a handful of years ago to be um, largely appointed. Oh, okay. So it's appointed by, like, for instance, just giving me a rough idea, the governor of Virginia could appoint two senators instead of electing them. So it's something yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. So, so these are the people who are agitating for all these constitutional that they're the, that's the mouthpiece that's being used okay. to propose these constitutional changes. That lower house, the Duma, the uh, the rough equivalent to our House of 
representatives. Yes. And they all have, well, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them probably have relationships with Putin. Oh, absolutely. Putin's power yeah. base so that Putin go to, a, you know, has a political party, the United Russia Party. He also has a couple of opposition parties that are clearly just nominal opposition. Um, they take, you know, behind the scenes, they take their marching orders from Putin and the Kremlin, but they exist to make it look like there's an opposition. <laughs> okay, so, so I need to hire an opposition. Yes. It's not really yeah. an opposition. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. And then there's a relatively small number of people who actually get elected from opposition parties. But all of that having been said, um, for a very long time, that legislature has been a rubber stamp, right? It's had no actual power whatsoever. Um, it just exists to make it look like there's a balance of power. To make it look Western. Like, yep. a, like a democracy. Yep. Sorry, yeah. Augie. I mean, because in part, that's what allows Putin to say internationally, we still have a viable democracy. Yes. There's opposition parties. Okay. We have a legislative body that theoretically could hold the president accountable. And we, a judicial system that acts have a judicial as a system. third, yeah, a third branch. Except they don't have a free press, have. which is the key to a democracy, really, isn't it? I'm not going to argue with you there. Yep. I mean, but if you think about the, 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 the Russian judicial system, when the proposed constitutional changes were put in front of it, the, uh, what, what do they call it, the Judy uh, Constitutional Court? Constitutional Court, yeah. They went ahead and ratified the changes. And yeah, you know, everyone was kind of waiting to see what that opinion was going to look like because <laughs> there was so much question about whether or not they were going to approve it. It's oh, really? Now I'm still question or no? You can't see the sarcasm in my voice. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. An enormous amount of sarcasm. <laughs> in my like everybody knew that the court, the constitutional court was just going to rubber stamp. Oh, okay. So what he does is basically he takes people to dinner and he says, <laughs> okay, this is what I'm going to need you to say. Well, not him, but minions of him. Take yeah. people to dinner and this, uh, this is what I'm going to need you to say. And when you do that, this is what I'll give you for your re-election campaign. I'll give you airtime. I'll give you money. I'll give you my approval, which theoretically carries weight. And people say, all right, I'll do what you need me to do. Because yeah, that's a couple the of elements works. of that summary, though, um, make that system seem more like our system than they really are. Oh. Uh, first of all, campaign money, I mean, again, they don't need it because elections are already kind of set ups to begin with. And so the idea that campaigns actually matter um, and, and campaign contributions actually matter, I mean, if your media is all state run, then oh. you know, the party in power dominates the media. And whether or not, you know, there's no like money to buy airtime that's a huge that's a huge factor. Here. Oh, okay. Uh, the second thing is the idea that Putin or his immediate cronies would need to have dinner with any, anybody behind the scenes and tell them what they're supposed to do. Um, they don't really need to do that because everybody already sort of knows, knows what's expected of them, right? So... I mean, these conversations are happening behind the scenes, but but basically it's a system where everything and everyone answers to Putin. And Putin has multiple sort of um, clans, competing lines of authority that he exercises. Um, it's 
it's almost Stalin-esque, right, in the way he keeps various centers of power um, all competing with one another for his attention and for control over resources so that none of them ever gets too dominant and certainly none of them ever reaches a point where they could possibly challenge him for power or authority. So he, he is super smart in, in yeah. the sense of the way that you dictate and manipulate this kind of thing. He's really good at this. He's super smart, really good at this. I mean, he couldn't have been doing it this successfully for this long if he weren't, right? He's also super lucky, right? Because wow. his time in office back in the 2000s coincides with international prices for the only thing Russia has, which <gasps> is oil and natural gas. Okay. Those prices starting to go through the ceiling back in 2005, 2006. So... Putin's time in office starts to coincide with Russia all of a sudden becoming a rich country. So he's got money. He's got resources. I see. Okay. He's got got some leverage. He's the luckiest guy in the world because of the timing of of when he's been in office. Speaking of that, Judy, to the extent where we go with the next set of questions. Okay. So let's pivot to the fact that in this year alone, oil and gas prices have plummeted, okay, in part because of the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, okay, oil prices around the world were dropping significantly. So how is this affecting, if you will, uh, Putin or support for Putin? Because a, a lot of the public comments that were made by members of the Russian parliament for why they needed constitutional changes, will emphasize the word stability. Yep. Okay. Over and over and over again. Okay. And even his, even Putin's coy remarks in response to, you know, questions of, would you run for re-election again? Well, I would do it if it promoted stability because stability is so important in Russian society culture, history, etc. So how are these, if you will, economic changes in regards to their pretty much their own only significant natural resource? Okay, how's that affecting, for instance, his popularity or his ability to go ahead and pull these puppet strings that he's done so successfully? So a couple of points there. One is that Russia was taking an economic hit even before oil prices went down because of sanctions. Uh, Um, So Russia invades Ukraine, illegally annexes Crimea, um, starts a war that is still ongoing even in the middle of an infectious disease pandemic in the eastern part of Ukraine. um, And the Western community quite rightly, right, rightly puts heavy sanctions on Russia. Okay. Russia has tried to respond to that with pretty aggressive import substitution policies, some of which had been in place even before the sanctions regime. And, and it's, you know, the, those import substitution policies, counter sanctions have helped, but clearly Russia took an economic hit because of the sanctions. Okay. Exacerbated by falling oil prices. Um, so, yeah, that's, that is all part of the stability equation. And one more really important factor here is that Putin has used his control of the media to spin 
any blame for all of the economic pain that they've felt in the last five or six years as the fault of evil Western enemies. So it, it's hard for us to imagine sitting here watching, you know, the wide array of diverse media options that we have here in, in the United States. It's hard to imagine the extent to which a huge percentage of the Russian media consuming audience has bought in to this overwhelming narrative that's been spun by the Kremlin that Russia is surrounded by enemies in the West that want to weaken it that want to overtake it. The whole revolution and situation in Ukraine was all part of the West's aggression toward Russia. And so only by sticking with the, you know, stilled, competent, you know, back to Augie's words, stable leadership provided by Putin, can we maintain Russia's strength against this external enemy. And it's alarming the extent to which even my you know, sort of pro-United States, well-educated, seemingly liberal Russian friends have bought into at least some of this line of argument. See, and I would say that that's, I would say that that's hard for us to imagine, except that some of, some people in the United States do that too. They get their news from one source. And so that's the source that they carry forward. Um, you know, and one side or the other is evil and out to destroy mm -hmm. the United States as we know and love it. So I, I guess it's that, but on steroids, right? It's that, yeah. but to an extreme level of yeah, because it's the only voice you ever hear. You don't get your cousins arguing with you over at the Thanksgiving table right. saying, that's not true. Everybody in the room is saying, yes, that's true, which... Yeah, because the media is controlled by the state. Right. Okay? It, right. and, and sometimes I will go ahead and have people say, well, you know, we have issues with um, uh, the press in the United States because it is controlled by large corporations. And wouldn't we have a better media if it was controlled by the government? Oh, gosh, no. Okay. Even and, I know that's a bad idea. And I want to take over the world. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea because then you could end up with a with a dictator like Putin, but you could also just end up with a president like Murdoch. If yep. your president was President Murdoch, can you imagine how Rupert Murdoch? Can you imagine how that would go? That's terrifying. So I mean, you know, the, one of the basic ideas behind a free press is you actually have competition. Okay? Right. So you can choose. Mm -hmm. Now, many Americans, Nia, as you point out, aren't self-select, right? They only watch Fox or they only watch MSNBC or they only read the New York Times or they only read the Wall Street Journal, okay, or whatever the case may be. But theoretically, they still have choice, okay? Yeah, they could read something else. They just, yeah. they don't. But also, they could, I mean, they can be exposed and they are often exposed to ideas around the edges of their beliefs that make it not quite so 100% iron which is what judy's talking about i think is that if everybody in your world was repeating the same you know yeah i think how difficult it would be for you oh, to go ahead and to and think outside of that yeah, yeah to think differently so okay. judy can i ask a question that i and if you if you say to me no i'm not going to answer that because it will throw us off i totally understand <laughs> but is crimea the land of magic and xanadu like what's the deal with Crimea <laughs> being so important that 
Putin is willing to, I mean, to have a war over it, right? Like people are willing for this to be a thing. Um, has really nice beaches. Oh, okay. So it's like Myrtle Beach. It's like us fighting over Myrtle Beach with maybe Canada or something. Um, it has important <laughs> naval bases in the Black Sea. Oh. It's headquarters for the Black Sea Fleet. Okay. Um, there's also um, a historical argument over whether Crimea should belong to Russia or Ukraine. Yeah. Um, Somebody the, gave gave it to somebody or gave it back to somebody or and it's flipped back and forth a handful of times going back over a couple of centuries of history it is true that the farther east you go in ukraine the more heavily the population becomes ethnically russian and the more russian speaking rather than ukrainian speaking the population becomes okay um that having been said there are norms of state sovereignty and territorial integrity. <laughs> Crimea is part of Ukraine. And the United States and the Western civilized world have done absolutely the right thing by not recognizing Russia's illegal violation of Ukraine's territorial sovereignty and illegal annexation of Ukraine. And I will die on this hill, right? This happened because Ukraine was leaning toward the rest, um, leaning toward relationships with the European Union and NATO that Russia was clearly not happy with. Um, Russia does not want a, an open democratic Ukraine right on its doorstep. And yeah. so it acted accordingly and it acted illegally. Um, but you might be able to tell that I feel really strongly about this. <laughs> um, you know, Ukraine has a Ukraine with all its issues, right? And, and obviously in the United States political context, we've heard about corruption in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has gotten awful PR in the United States because of what's happened with, um, with the Trump narrative coming, coming out of there. But I've spent time in Ukraine fairly recently and done a lot of work on Ukraine and with Ukrainian counterparts recently. And the, the drive for democracy in Ukraine the strength of an incredibly young, talented, vibrant civil society in Ukraine is just overwhelming. Um, Ukraine is the front line in the battle for democracy and Western civilization right now. Wow. Um, we, we need to be holding fast in our defense of Ukraine and the democratic forces there. Okay. Yay. Okay. So soapbox. Okay, I'm done. Now. No, 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 no. I. It's important for us to know. It's important for us to have context because everything, as we discussed on this podcast about a zillion times, everything is nuanced and and about context. Right. So what what you're saying is that Ukraine's potential future democracy threatens Putin's control over Russia yep. because of its proximity and I assume its size. It's quite large yes. relative yes. to lots of other countries in Europe, which apparently are eensy binty. Um, then it, 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 it threatens him in some way that he feels is worth the sanctions, is worth the disapproval of, of yep. the rest of the world. Right, well, because the disapproval of the rest of the world um, hiked Putin's approval rating at home through the ceiling, right? The annexation oh. of Crimea was enormously popular inside Russia. Um, you know, again, def you know, defending Russia's great power status, um, 
know, and it was ours to begin with. The and, Russians, Crimea and, is ours, right? And, and, and they're, they speak Russian all over the place. And, We're looking out for our cousins, and yeah, yes, okay. exactly. Yeah, in Nia, the number of times Judy has said to me, uh, uh, Crimea is almost like um, Putin's wag the dog moment, yes, okay. Um, even if it didn't have historical, cultural, mm -hmm. um, you know, political, ec uh, economic uh, value, okay, if nothing else, it allows or allowed Putin to go ahead and say, we can't have this on our doorstep. And even with all the other stuff that may be wrong in Russian society, okay, we need to go ahead and defend our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, et cetera, in the Ukraine, okay? Yep. And if you've ever watched the movie Wag the Dog. Yeah, you have a, to find a war for a, for a distraction and to, build yep. your, and to build your base at home. So if he's in another trough, can we look forward to another invasion somewhere? Um, no, they're not going to have the money. So, oh, okay. Um, so let's, let's go... Um, to be, I mean, not to be fair, but let, let's not pivot quite yet. Um, I am in no way defending Putin here, okay. but to give some longer scale historical context, um, Russia's felt surrounded by enemies for a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. It has really long land borders with hostile powers, historically hostile powers on both sides, on all sides. Um, you know, the only thing that saved it from Germany in World War II was winter, right? Right. But, you know, you know the, the, the memory of World War II, it's called the Great Patriotic War in, in the Russian context, um, is sacred. Um, you know, they, they lost tens of millions of soldiers and civilians in that war. We can't begin to understand what they went through during World War II. Um, you go back even further than that, back to the Mongol hordes, right? You know, it, you go back a very long time um, in, in understanding Russia's feelings of being surrounded by enemies and needing to build up geographic buffer zones. Right. So at the end of World War II, why did the Soviet Union, why did Stalin gobble up so much of Eastern Europe? Geographic buffer zone against yeah. what it saw as a hostile Western alliance, right? So it, it's not unreasonable to paint what Putin's doing now with that brush. Although having said that, I also want to make clear that that doesn't excuse <laughs> it. it. It just creates a context. Right. And it's easy for us to say because we only have two countries, neither of which are particularly hostile and neither of which pose a particular threat to us, even if oh, they were. And we've got giant oceans hostile. on both sides, right? right. We have so, completely different geographic. Yeah, uh, I mean, if Canada decided to well, invade. I mean, this is like National Security 101, right? Yeah. This matters. Geography right. matters. Yeah. Yeah. So if Canada decided to invade us, the three of us could probably repel them. I mean, like, and I'm terribly <laughs> out of shape. So it's, it's, but I'm saying I like our chances, but he, yeah. he they've got China, they've got, yeah. I see where that could be a pressure that, and I agree with you that it's not right to go around invading people because of that. But by the same token, it made, it made sense after World War II. It made sense that yeah. they would want a buffer between them and Germany because Germany mm -hmm. was so hostile and almost won several of those big yes. 
invasion-y type things, right? Napoleon and Hitler didn't, Hitler should have learned from Napoleon about Mm -hmm. the whole cold thing, but still, that's a lot of, that's a lot of um, lost Russians, and I can see where that would be something he would, that that would be carried in the genetic memory, right? Not just in your personal memory, but also in your cultural memory. Mm -hmm. So fast forward us now to the beginning of this year and they're going to, they, so they changed the constitution Mm -hmm. and, and they're like, you can serve for a thousand years. We love you (laughs) so much. Big hugs and kisses. (laughs) And then COVID breaks out. Yep. And Now we have, I mean, I don't think any leader looks particularly good right now. Maybe Boris Johnson Johnson looks good because he's unconscious, but I don't think the rest of them are looking. But but he, I mean, so I don't want to speak ill of the moderately to severely coronavirus infected, but he bungled UK's response in, in a major way, right? In a lot of ways that are very similar to what Donald Trump did here. So, well, and nobody, I mean, Italy doesn't look good. Nobody looks good right now. So how is that affecting? A handful of young female prime ministers look good. Yeah. Oh, that's true. New Zealand. She looks pretty (laughs) good. Um, And uh, Sweden? No, Norway. Now, Sweden's done some really stupid things. No, it's it's Norway. She's got, I think, an entire female cabinet and stuff. Um, And you're not hearing anything from them the way you are right with the Swedes who are like, oh, go ahead, give everybody a hug, which is weird because Swedes aren't generally like that, but whatever. So how (laughs) is that affecting, how how is COVID affecting Russia? I know that they offer medical equipment relatively recently to some countries or something. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things about that. Um, You talked earlier about using Putin as a role model for your world dictatorial aspirations. Yeah, except apparently I have to kill the internet and I can't let anybody look at any media. Uh, So I'm going to have to have more control than I currently have. Yeah. Well, one person um, who clearly is um, consistently not just in the COVID response, but for years has been using Putin as his role model is Donald Trump. So a fair amount of what... um, of what Putin has done in the initial phases of response to coronavirus is, is there's a lot of similarities between Trump and Putin. Um, they closed borders early. So Russia's got a 4,300 kilometer land border with China. They closed that immediately. Smart move, right? Can they, can they actually do that? I mean, is their border secure enough? Like if we said we're closing the Canadian border, <laughs> I mean, we have said that, and I don't know that it's actually technically closed. Um, so they closed, so this is, this is tangential um, epidemic talk here, but they, um, I was just looking at um, case numbers in Russia's Far East today. They, the, the, the breakout in China was mostly in the central part of China and the southern part of China. So the northern parts that border Russia um, had cases, have cases of coronavirus, but not China's heavy caseload. Okay. Um, but yeah, Russia locked down public transportation fairly quickly. But one of the things that um, China is worried about now is the number of people who were infected in Moscow who have gotten on flights to Vladivostok, which is Russia's biggest city in the Far East, yep. and now are taking private cars and buses from Russia into China 
And so China is now closing border posts with Russia in order to avoid infection coming into China from Russia. Are those Russians going to China or are those Chinese no, citizens Chinese going home? Get, they're Chinese trying to get home. Yeah. Okay. And, and you, I mean, you raise a great question about cross-border traffic between Russia and China because there's so much shuttle trade going on in those border towns and cities, um, yeah. you know, with China's you know, with Chinese people selling lots of stuff into Russia, a lot of intermarriage across the border in the last decade or so. Um, so oh. yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the numbers that are being reported out of those regions. So far, those aren't big numbers being reported by Russia, but I'm not sure how much we should be believing many of the numbers that are reported out of Russia right now. So. That was another question I was going to ask you. I, I was hoping, oh, so thank you for bringing it up, because I was hoping you could tell me, I, I don't hold a whole lot of faith in the CDC's numbers for the United States, because we're not doing adequate testing to really right. know how many cases we have. And I'm not saying that to slam the CDC. It's just a fact. We're not, if yeah. we were testing, we would probably have a lot more numbers. And the also, CDC says that right you know there, there's nobody right. you know except i mean you know maybe people with political motivations to to say something different but the public health professionals in the united states will you know are saying oh yes actual case numbers are far above what we're able to report right now because of shortcomings in our testing regime are they saying that in russia okay wait so let me back up for just a second what plays over in my head whenever anybody talks about these kinds of numbers and, you know, releasing the numbers from a country for a variety of things is when Iran looked the world in the face and said, we don't have any gay people here. Yeah. And I'm like, um, yeah, you do, because mathematically, there are gay people in Iran. They may be terrified to be there and not be public. So I, I'm always sort of like, eh, a little sketched out by whatever num com number comes along. Do we think there's adequate reporting of what they do know in Russia? Um, this is one where um, I think they are being straightforward in terms of what they do know. Um, okay. I don't think That's good. That, I don't think that the Kremlin is sitting there with you know secret reporting of the real numbers and that they're hiding and then they're presenting to the rest of the world a set of fake numbers. Okay. I don't think that's, that's happening. Um, but what about the testing regime? The testing regime has issues and we can talk about what those are, but um, let, let's fold that back into um, where we were maybe five minutes ago and talk about how Russia has responded to coronavirus. Okay. They closed the borders, they shut down flights, you know, they, they did all, a lot of the kinds of things that we did here early on in the United States. And then just like we did here in the United States, we squandered the time that we could have bought with those border closers by thinking that that was probably enough. And so we didn't do a lot of the prep that we should have done over the subsequent couple of weeks of lead time that that those border closings should have bought us medical but, supplies quarantine stay away from each other social distancing right that what you mean is that what you mean absolutely, by absolutely. those are the things yeah, we should have been doing right we just okay. you know we didn't we didn't want to risk that because we were afraid of the economic hit that that was going to cost um so we traded off public health for economic 
health in ways that in the long term will cause everybody who went down that path to take a bigger economic hit in the long term. Right? Okay, so um, it didn't, it, all it's doing is pushing the pain further down the road. It's not helping. Right, and probably increasing the amount of pain yeah, that, yeah. Will, that will have to suffer. Yeah. Um, so there weren't signs that Putin was really taking this seriously until March 24th and March 25th. Oh, <gasps> that late. Yes, when it looks very much like, you know, he got the briefing that scared the pants off him, right? So it was back then when we saw him don the big yellow protective suit and go visit the big coronavirus hospital that they were um, doing emergency construction of right outside um, Moscow. Yeah. And then he gave a national address on March 25th where he seemed weirdly relaxed and passive. And he talked about um, economic measures, you know, support for the health sector, support for small businesses, blah, blah, blah. He talked very little about quarantine. He talked very little about mitigation. Um, it, and, and he, like his physical position, he was, you know, kind of sitting relaxed with one arm propped up on his desk. It, it was just a really strange presentation. Well, particularly um, for, you know, somebody like Putin, who is, again, very assertive, very aggressive. Right. Yeah. Portrayed as a doer, not a responder. Well, right. and if he was sitting at his desk, isn't that slightly unusual for him? Usually he's standing at a podium. Right. Or at yeah, least when I've seen him, he's... Down a long red right. carpet, you know, <laughs> very lots of pomp and circumstance and ceremony. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, um, so a couple of things about this. One is that the next day on March 26th, um, in this, you know, pretty rapid progression of events that make it look like he starts to get it, he has a televised video conference with regional leaders, because at this point he's social distancing, right? So he's in his office by himself and he's got them all on the big Zoom screen in front of him. And he gives this extraordinary speech where he gives them a set of marching orders about what they need to do to contain the spread of the virus and mitigate the um, health and economic impact of the virus. But numerous times during that speech, he says things like, and guys, this time we need for you to actually do the things that I'm telling you to do. I need real reports, not just on paper. I need you to take action for real and not just tell me that you're taking action. It was one of the most extraordinary speeches I've ever heard a leader give in what it revealed about the way the system usually works. Uh, Usually everybody is so afraid of being the bearer of bad news yeah. that they lie to each other all the time about what's really going on and about what they're really achieving and about what's really happening. That, you know, that's an echo of the way the entire Soviet economy functioned, right? It's why the Soviet Union fell apart because they all lied to each other all the time about whether they were fulfilling their annual plan and their five-year plan targets because none of them wanted to get blamed for things going wrong. So, so that's where Russia had gotten now to the point that Putin had to actually say, this time it's serious, guys. Don't lie to me anymore. I want to hear what's really going on. And I want you to actually do the stuff I'm telling you to do instead of just going through the motions. 
It's remarkable. Wow. Yeah. That's, so that, that's what we've heard out of one of the problems with China was, was that people yes. didn't want yeah. to report up the, the numbers. They didn't want to report up the deaths. They didn't want to do any of that because they thought that it would reflect badly on them. So you're saying that the, that the, that the Russian system has been similar. And he's like, no, 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 we, we can't, this time's legit. We have to actually have legit numbers because we need, I assume we need to know where to send supplies, how to help people. In a public health emergency, you need two things more than anything else. You need data, real data about what's happening, just like you say, so that you know where to allocate resources and how to allocate resources. And you also need communications, right? You need crystal clear, effective, strategic communication about what everybody needs to do, what all your institutions need to do, what people need to be doing, and how they need to be doing it. And if people are afraid to go ahead and report the data, okay, that communication problem only exasperates the first problem. Mm-hmm. Because you Absolutely. don't know. Okay. Yep. So, oh, okay. so are Russians being told now to self-quarantine, to yes. stay off yes. the street? And are they doing it? Yes. Okay. So it's before we get off the um, what happened in Russia and China thing, um, observing that something similar happened here in the United States, right, where it took us a while to get to even begin to get our act together. Um, so a couple of points about that. One is that it's really tempting to try to make generalizations about whether democracies or authoritarian systems have the capacity to respond better to situations like this. And fundamentally, I don't think you can draw any conclusions like that based on what's happened with this pandemic. The key thing seems to have been competence, not the type of political system you have. Everywhere though, in big countries, the key seems to have been whether or not local and regional leaders have stepped up where national leadership has failed. So look at what's happening in the United States and the difference between, um, I don't know, California, where the governor of California is now coordinating the response for the entire Western part of the United States, right? Um, Look at how effective Andrew Cuomo has been, right? In in making New York's response happen since things got bad there. Um, Compare that to most of the Southern governors, um, the governor of Florida, who took forever to shut down the beaches and spring break, right? So we're really seeing an illustration, I think, of how where there's a national leadership vacuum, local leadership matters in a major way. And that's been true in Russia also. So this gets us back to what's been going on with Putin. Um, As Putin, you know, has been kind of weirdly passive and relaxed. There are two people that have stepped up and are now forming with Putin kind of a triumvirate of leadership against the pandemic. Um, One is the new prime minister who got put in place as a part of the whole proposal for constitutional changes back in January. So Medvedev was out for um, a lot of reasons. He's been the subject of a couple of really hard hitting independent YouTube videos made by independent um, political activists in Russia over the last couple of years, slamming him for having really big, fancy, lavish estates and and a lavish lifestyle. Um, So Medvedev's reputation has kind of taken a hit over the last, say, year or two. So it was kind of easy for Putin to edge him out um, in 
as part of the whole constitutional shakeup in January and bring in a new prime minister, um, a guy named um, Mishustin, um, who was their chief tax inspector. Um, kind of came out of nowhere. Imagine that the head of the IRS was all of a sudden named to, you know, to the cabinet, right, in, in the United States. That's roughly the equivalent of what happened here. So, and, and he has been a pretty competent technocrat directing the economic part of Russia's response. But the face of Russia's response has been Sergei Sobyanin, the mayor of Moscow. So if, you know, if you're thinking about Putin's carefully constructed, very successfully constructed public image over the last, you know, almost two decades, um, this is the first time you've had someone who's looked a little bit like an equal, um, not necessarily a challenger, but an equal. Sobyanin has been an effective communicator. He's been a forceful communicator, and he locked Moscow down way earlier than the rest of the country got locked down. And then the rest of the country has kind of, you know, in, in an uneven and staggering kind of way, but has been following the lead that, that Moscow has taken. So really interesting political dynamics here where people are starting to talk about Sobyanin now as a logical successor to Putin. Mm, okay. um, so right now they're in the middle of a pandemic, so I'll be hugely surprised if there's any kind of political shakeup anytime soon, right? Stability is the thing. Um, but Sobyanin is in a longer term danger zone in that he's really looking very effective as a political leader. Um, so he may turn up in a river with cement shoes at some point. I, I don't, or, or maybe I, not I if he's so well known and so popular I, that- Yeah, but he may find that there are um, measures taken to decrease his visibility. How about that? They won't bump him off the way they've bumped off journalists and uh, and opposition figures who have been living in in Western countries. You know, I don't anticipate his accidental fall from a five-story window, which seems to be the or the um or the or the injection of yeah right yeah. plutonium or whatever. It's not plutonium, but you know what I mean. Where that like they're trying to make yeah, them X Men and instead they'll kill them. Yeah. Um, um, but um. Or yeah. maybe Putin will realize if he grooms this guy and he keeps him within within a certain like range, he can use him to to be um, I don't know, like a, a, reaching out to young people, reaching out to people who may be looking for change and saying, "See, I don't destroy my enemies. I." I don't Could know. Be. I mean, it's so Putin. I mean, people are starting to make jokes about Putin now, um, which isn't like, you know, more liberal Western oriented opposition figures have had Putin jokes for a long time. But now, like ordinary people are starting to make Putin jokes um, based on him being perceived not anymore as sort of the in control, you know, father of the country, but kind of the out of touch grandfather of the country. So that, that oh. it, with his visit to the, uh, to the hospital facility in the big yellow moon suit, people are just kind of laughing at that now. Um, you know, they're perceiving him as being removed, out of touch. Um, and again, Mishustin and Sobyanin are, are the guys that are perceived to be in control. So if you are a Sobyanin at this point, 
presumably you're being pretty careful about your relationship with Putin because you don't want Putin to see you as threatening, right? right. You, you, you want to make sure that, uh, that you're walking that, that tightrope really carefully. Um, so, it must be exhausting, though, to be a dictator. Yeah. In the sense yeah. that you're constantly fretting about other people's popularity and whether the people are getting tired of you. You know, like, I mean, I would think that after a while, after 20 years, which it's been pretty close to that, it's not quite, I think, but pretty close, that seems like you'd be exhausted. Like, like it wouldn't it would make sense to me to make a deal with that person not unlike the deal that Yeltsin made with Putin which is mm -hmm. if you don't if you just leave me alone in my retirement i shall take all the money that i've skimmed off the top cuz i'm feel certain that there's money skimmed off in various Putin's places Putin is the richest guy in the world i have yeah yeah. So if you took your money and you went and sat in your dhaka by the ocean mm -hmm. um and people left you alone it, it might not be a bad way to end your, your last few years. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not going to happen anytime soon again, because of the whole crisis stability right. bit. Um, it appears to me that Putin still perceives himself as the essential ingredient. Ah. And it's not just Putin. I think there are also key elite groups, um, private sector elites, other political elites, um, the, the siloviki, um, uh, the Russian word for force or power is seal. Um, and so the siloviki are the, are the people in the power ministries, um, the security services, the military, the armed forces, um, you know, people in those power bases who now have some say over what's gonna happen here. And so there's probably a lot of conversation about what those power dynamics are likely to be between Putin and Sibyanin and, and others going forward. I, I'm sure it's um, energetic and complicated, right? But your point, Mia, about how exhausting this must be for a dictator, I mean, it's exhausting for any politician anywhere, right? You know, <laughs> oh my it, gosh, it not our presidents apply to authoritarians. Right? Our presidents look terrible after they've been president, yeah, yeah. and that's just four yeah. to eight years. Right. They look like like they've aged 50 years. I mean, yeah. it's just, yeah. I imagine that constantly being worried about your back in addition yeah. to all, to everything else would just be like, yeah. oh God, I just don't even know how to get out of bed every day. Yeah. yeah. The other complication for Russia is that, um, circling back to a much earlier point that we made, is that they're gonna run out of money. Um, one of the things that they very smartly did because they've had really smart, competent central bankers for 15 years now, is they've used all that oil and gas money that they accrued when oil and gas prices were high to build up ginormous stabilization funds of various kinds. So literally billions and billions of dollars in the bank for this very kind of rainy day, right? I mean, this is quite a rainy day that we're facing <laughs> right now, but the combination of lowered oil prices, and just today they reached a deal with Saudi Arabia on kind of balancing yeah. oil production cuts with you know, oil price um, setting. Um, so that they're, you know, they're managing as best they can what's happening, but they, they know that stabilizing the economy through this pandemic is going to run them out of money in, in, in pretty short order. 
Um, that's, that's interesting for all the reasons that it's obviously interesting. It's also interesting because over the last couple of years, um, as sanctions and decreased oil prices have chipped away at Russia's economy, um, one of the things that Putin has done is start spending a lot on social programs um, in something that looks like it's very much akin to a social contract, right? You let me keep doing my political soft authoritarian thing and I will improve your healthcare, improve your education, improve your um, you know, basic social support structure in, in fundamental ways. Um, if Putin can't keep doing that because of the hit that this pandemic has made on the economy, um, it's going to be interesting to see what the political fallout of that will be. Yeah, because the Western example is once you uh, create those social welfare programs, then you have stakeholders. Yeah. You begin to go ahead and expect the entitlement or the benefit or benefits. And when yeah. they don't get it, that's when they frequently get restless. They begin to distrust their institutions and the leaders of those institutions. I mean, and and that's already started to happen. So back to the pension thing. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I know, I know, we're running low on time, so I don't want to keep you. But, I, but you mentioned pensions, and I'm like, oh, you can't mess with old people. Well, right. You so, get out and vote. Third rail, right? <laughs> yeah, third rail. And and Russia's old people actually marched in the streets back oh about a decade ago, when they tried monetizing a lot of monetary non-monetary benefits that pensioners had, like free public transportation, stuff like that. Um, and Putin's primary electoral block, I mean, you know, he's got an advantage among all age cohorts, but boy, old people love him more than anybody else, right? And so, um, so dealing with the pension burden is a problem, but Russia is a heavily aging population and the pension fund was running into deficit in a huge way Russia's retirement age until the summer of 2018 was 55 for women, or 50, 55 for women and 60 for men. It's one of that's the lowest young. in the world, right? Yeah, that's really young. Although, wait, what's your life expectancy in Russia? Um, at the height of their demographic crisis in the 1990s, for men, it was lower than that. So wow. this is a whole other ball of wax, <laughs> but you know, it, it's a vicious circle. Why is that life expectancy so low? Um, for men, it's because they're drinking so much. And why are they drinking so much? Because if they're not even going to live long enough to retire, why not have a good time while they're here, right? So how do you get yourself out of that vicious circle? Um, and the answer is that they did a lot of you know, really pretty smart public health moves to restrict access to alcohol and tobacco um, throughout sort of the late 2000s, over the last uh, you know, sort of 10 to 12 years, that's a completely different story. But they've, they've tackled a lot of that premature mortality. They still have it, but they've tackled it in pretty impressive ways over, uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. But still, um, this, is, this is a fiscal problem, right? If you correct your problem with reduced life expectancy, then people live long enough to draw their pensions. And so, um, you know, at, at one point, one of the, the, the Minister of Finance actually said, let's stop doing all those great alcohol and tobacco control measures because we, we can't afford to pay their pensions. Holy actually, cow. Yeah. Let's um, let people drink bathtub vodka because we don't want to pay them 
when they're old. That's terrifying. Right. And I mean, not just bathtub vodka, but when they started to increase the excise taxes on vodka, um, cologne, cough syrup, industrial lubricants, <gasps> right? There's a whole category of stuff called surrogate alcohols um, that they were and to a lesser extent are drinking in, in a major way. So anyway, big tangent. Um, so the pension burden was huge. And if you run the numbers on that, um, all you have to do is increase the pension age by a relatively small amount in order to make a pretty big dent in that fiscal burden because most of the people who are drawing pensions are your relatively young retired people, right? You know, before, before they start to die off. So in the summer of 2018, they announced a phase-in over the next like two decades. So it's a very gradual phase-in of an increase of the retirement age. Um, that didn't go over very well. Yeah. So the hit on Putin's popularity actually started back then. And it coincided with a wave of street protests, not just in your big cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg, but all over the country among primarily young people against um, a whole lot of different stuff, right? Fraudulent elections, corruption was a big theme in these protests, um, environmental degradation, right? Garbage dumps were, uh, toxic garbage dumps were a big, uh, a big theme of a lot of these protests. Um, and a lot of these protests were being driven by young people who were getting their news off the internet. Um, uh -huh. From a, a fair number of really skilled Russian YouTube bloggers. So you've got this pre-existing kind of tableau of pension age increases having made people mad starting back in the summer of 2018, protest action that started back in 2018, 2019, that was already making the leadership nervous, and now they have a global pandemic to be with, to deal with. So again, I don't, you know, kind so of, that, that, wrapping up um, summary <laughs> statement here. Um, I don't think we should expect to see any kind of changes or instability anytime soon because stability, you know, again, you know, back to Augie's first comment an hour ago, um, stability is baked into the Russian soul, right? And it's going to be a watchword as they deal with that, with the impact of the pandemic. But, um, you know, those constitutional changes that were initiated back in January, there was a reason they were doing that, right? You know, it was to, it was to fend off potential sources of instability moving forward. Now they've had to, they've had to postpone the referendum that they were going to have on April 22nd to approve these constitutional changes. They're not going to have that now because pandemic. Um, so that's pushed off now into the future. Um, there are a whole lot of question marks about yeah. what the shape of Russian politics is, is going to be. And I don't think those question marks are going to be resolved in the near term, but I think that there are plenty of open questions um, coming down the pike. So when we, look, when we look back 10 years from now or 20 years from now, will this be the start of change in Russia? Like of, will this be the start of the end of the Putin era and the beginning of a different era? I, it would not surprise me if that were the case, although we'd want to um, put an asterisk by that um, in that, you know, sort of the, the fertile ground started to be created just a little bit earlier right. for these kinds of changes. But, 
sort of popping up a level of analysis, I think that all of the people who have been talking about global health security for a very long time and have been advocating for better preparation for exactly the kind of thing that's happening right now, um, the work that those people have been doing for a very long time tells us that it's not just Russian politics that will change as a result of this pandemic, that we are likely to see political shifts in lots of different countries around the world. And if we're smart, we're going to see changes in the global political architecture as well. We need to if we're going to come up with ways to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. Right. And it, and we we obviously and clearly need to work on public health as a centralized world prop like the idea that a country can be isolated somehow in a mm -hmm. in this situation when we know that the world has only gotten tinier and tinier i i mentioned to augie earlier that i, I can mail something to germany and it arrives in two days like mm -hmm. the the yeah. idea that you know that countries are separate anymore it just doesn't exist it's just not a Right, but that's but there's actually there's there's an important sort of counter argument to that that I think we're going to hear a lot. Um, you know, absolutely take your point. Um, you know, microbes don't respect international border lines, right? Um, obviously, this they can't read. Case. Let's just be fair to them; they can't read. Yep, they have <laughs> right. Um, and, and viruses. Oh, viruses are brilliant insidious little things, right? You know, and so they're gonna go wherever they can. So that is a, an important and fundamental point that is foundational to everything we've known for a long time about infectious disease control. But that having been said, um, my fear is that the lesson that the Donald Trumps of the world will take from this is that national borders do matter and can matter, right? That the way you deal with the threat posed by this globalized world is to close your borders, become more self-sufficient, become more autarkic, make sure that you have the capacity to seal yourself off for the rest of the world and have to rely only on yourself in situations like this. Yeah. And that's, a, that's I mean, I think that's a gigantically dangerous game. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose my Pollyanna view of the world um, because I don't want to live in a world where people say, well, we'll just close our borders and we'll close out. That's so not scientific. It's so not appreciating the reality of human interaction. Like you were saying about China and Russia, people are married across the border. Yes. So, you know, you can't, it would that it were so simple that you could say, okay, we're just going to put up a great big wall and nobody will ever get in or out, but that's not human. That's yeah. just not humans. Yeah. It's not taking humans into account. That's not how we work. Yeah. And, and, and institutionally it's so my, I'll get up on a parallel soapbox to my Ukrainian uh, soapbox. And that has to do with the world health organization. Um, let me just offer the fact here that under the radar, while everybody has been focused on a coronavirus pandemic, um, the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo has stopped. And the reason that it has stopped is because the World Health Organization made that happen. Um, lots of other people contributed to it, but it's been WHO leadership that has quashed a deadly Ebola pandemic 
in Democratic Republic of Congo and surrounding areas. So WHO has, you know, has its issues. China lied for political reasons. WHO had to finesse the way it dealt with China at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, but under its current leadership, WHO has become an enormously effective, vital organization. This is not the time to be talking about cutting off WHO. We ought to be doing what we can to support global leadership and coordination, not kill it. What, what's good to know, Judy, is that Augie has many times informed me that while Donald Trump can say he's going to cut off money to a variety of things, including I'm going to cut off all the water to Richmond and I'm going to scoop out the ocean with a teacup, he has to have the Congress actually pay to get that done or act enact in some way to get that done. So I, I'm happy for him to talk his talk, but fortunately I don't believe that even if, even if tomorrow we decided to cut off funding, that it would be that fast or that simple because there's lots of opposition to that. So I'm, I, I live in the optimistic world of um, you can flap your lips, but that's not actually how, how the U S government works. It's just further uh, notice that, you haven't been paying attention to any of Augie's civics lessons where you would know. <laughs> and the good news is that support for global health has enjoyed strong bipartisan support yes. in Congress for a very long time. Mitch McConnell is a polio survivor. He's been one of the oh, ardent supporters of yes. the global campaign to eradicate polio. Although I, I will admit that, um, one of the few things that has literally brought me to tears as a part of this coronavirus pandemic has been the news two weeks ago that the global polio eradication campaign has had to be suspended because of the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, we no. Were yeah, so there are costs. Close. Yep. So close. And, yep. now, and now it will, it, it, you know, polio will expand where it can. And without aggressive vaccination campaigns to fight it, we're going to have to maybe not start from square one, but we're going to get set back a few really important steps on that one. So there's, there's always a cost to everything. Yep. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I guess that's a cost benefit analysis that is horrible to have to make. I'm sure that there are countries that, while their oldsters are some of the people who are more likely to die from COVID. So that may relieve some of that pressure on their, on their retirement and pension systems, not just in Russia, but in Italy and here. I mean, right. That's a heck of a price to pay for, for that. So I, I get that it's complicated. It always comes back to the, the, the idea that there's no one string. It's a bunch of strings. And when yeah. you yank on one, something else gets, gets pulled too and um and i'm Often sad to hear that you do not anticipate yeah yes exactly yeah. the the law of unintended consequences um thank you so much for coming today yes. and talking to us about this you've made so many things so much clearer for me i have lots of other questions but we'll ask you those another time <laughs> if you don't mind coming back sure, be my pleasure. Um, but this has been wonderful thank you so much sure thank you augie thanks nia thanks judy
You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.